text is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign when these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, Take heed that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. But take heed to yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear testimony before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down, not enter his house to take anything away. And let him who is in the field not turn back to take his mantle. And alas for those who are with child, for these who, those who give suck in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, I have told you all things beforehand. 
The word of the Lord. I am not calling for open rebellion. I'm not calling for all-out revolution. Well, okay, I am. I just wanted to use some qualifiers to sort of like soften the message so it wouldn't seem... Yeah, okay, I'm not calling for armed revolution. That is what I'm not calling for. I'm not calling for armed revolution. That's true, but... um. Violence might be included, on the other hand. I mean, I'm not advocating violence. It just might... Well, not physical violence. I'm not advocating physical violence. You know, it's kind of hard to qualify a call for revolution, to soften it. And it's kind of hard to make actually a passionate call for a revolution that's been going on for thousands of years. And for many of those years, I just you have to admit it, it has lacked a lot of passion. I guess this is a recall for a revolution. Like, we should recall that a revolution is going on, has been going on. This is supposed to have been going on. You know, next week is the end of the church year, the liturgical church year, and then after that, Advent starts. And Advent is the beginning of a new church year, the beginning of looking forward to the birth of the revolution. The first Sunday in Advent, Advent is like the 28-day period of preparation for the celebration of the beginning of the revolution. It's the 28-day period of recalling the revolution, of bringing the fact of the revolution back into the forefront of all of our lives, of our consciousness, so that we might re-revolutionize, relive, revitalize the revolution. That all starts in a couple weeks. And since last Advent, we did the same thing. And for the last 50 weeks, we've been living out that revolution. I just thought I'd just check in to see how it's going. For the last 50 weeks, how we've been living out that revolution. When this incredible thing that we're called to celebrate happens, that God has come into the world and called us all to follow another narrative. And do you remember last year when that came about and how we all rose up out of our seats, out of our pews, and took to the streets? How's it going? Yeah, well, it's a crazy kind of revolution. I mean, you heard the scripture reading, right? A lot of stuff is said that's going to happen. And those, those uh, uh, apocalyptic texts get read a lot moving towards Advent and towards Christmas. They get read a lot, and especially like when you have Mark, they get read a lot because... Um, Mark doesn't really say anything about the birth of Jesus, or there's none of that in there, so you gotta, I don't guess what, talk about 
destruction instead. I guess that's what we got from Mark. The Gospel of Mark is funny. Another reason people talk about this stuff is because they, it's this, this, this birth, right, which is this revolution. It's called a revolution, but there's also this call for this future revolution. It's like, I don't know if you've been around church for very long, but it's something that we like to call the second coming. This is at the end of time where Jesus is again going to come into the world and call, revolutionize everything. Peace will reign, and those that have it coming to them will get it came to them, and um, it, will, it will be an amazing time. That's going to happen at the end of time. Because for some reason, the first time he came, I don't know why, he just didn't take care of it all then. Maybe it gives us something to look forward to. I don't know, it's kind of crazy to read the book that way. Because you have the, we can read about it. I got to tell you how amazing it used to be. And I want to tell you too, in the future it's going to be super amazing too. Right now it kind of sucks. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so there must, there's got to be a better way to read this text than to say that. So we look forward to celebrating God in Jesus coming into the world to reconcile the world, which happened in the past, and his Jesus coming again to finish the job. So it will stick, maybe, the next time. He will come to judge everyone, the quick and the dead, in the future. Well, I'm not dead. I'm not that quick either. Uh, but you don't have to be that quick to notice that if you read the Gospel of Mark this way, we just got a whole lot of not cool stuff going on in the middle of it all. So that kind of folk theology leaves us in this middle where we, I don't know, don't have to do much or... You know, Mark is really going out of his way, if you read this text, to convince his original readers not about what's happened in the past and not about what's going on in the future, but that they are living in this present reality in the midst of a full ongoing revolution, that all the cool stuff is happening right then for them. So when he's talking about all these things, these apocalyptic things, he's not talking about what's going to happen in the future. He is describing to them the situation that they're living in, that they're living through. I mean, and as to these future dates, at the end of time, when all these things will happen, Mark knows nothing of it. He does not speak of it. And I'm not saying that this isn't going to happen with the second coming at all. I mean, it certainly has been a tenet of orthodox theology ever since Father Ortho invented theology in 1669. I'm just saying that Mark is not talking about that in this text. I think Mark doesn't even think that it would be helpful to his community to put their hopes in some future event, that it might cause them to miss out on the revolutionary activity that they are in the midst of. I think it might be helpful for us, too, maybe, to think along those lines. There will be wars and rumors of wars. These are but the beginnings of the birth pangs of the revolution. You don't hear pangs a lot, do you? Pangs. It only seems like there's a couple kinds of pangs. There's birth pangs, 
and hunger pangs. I think those are the only pangs I know about. I mean, what is a pang, really? I mean, you feel it, right? It's like a pain, I think, birth pains. You know, hunger pains are interchangeable, but something about a pang seems different. Is it like pain but with fangs? Is it, what is a kind of, it's like a longing kind of a pain. It's not like you don't have a head pang, you know, or you hit your finger and you get a finger pang. No, it's not something where, it's, it's where something's missing or it's a longing. Something's coming. Birth pangs, hunger pangs. It's a desire for that which is yet to be fulfilled, pang. You know, there's a lot of examples of how great revolutions start. It just occurs to me that there's not a lot of examples about how great revolutions end. There's a lot of examples about how great evolutions, revolutions end badly, and a lot of examples about how bad revolutions end badly. I don't want to mention any particular revolutions because maybe you have your favorites. I don't want you to judge my judging of these revolutions. And this is off point. Anyway, um, so there are many examples of how revolutions begin. And the first thing you do, you got to seize the palace, right? You seize the palace or the capital or the central bank or the radio and the TV stations. And you take out the governing leaders. You take out the generals. That's how it all begins. In Mark, the first thing Jesus does is he takes out the evil spirits. He takes out all the demons and the devils. He destroys the power that's at the heart of the narrative that runs the world. Then he shuts down the temple because it served those powers. And he shows it for what it is, illuminating its workings. Shows that it is not the house of God, but a tool of religious and civil leaders to concentrate their power over the people. And he predicts its complete and final destruction. And in this text here, it starts out by his disciples, who he's been telling, revolutionizing, I don't want to say radicalizing them this whole time. And what their response is, is look at how cool that building is how powerful it is. No, he predicts its destruction. His closest followers, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they ask him, well, when is all this destruction going to happen? They want to know because, well, the expectation is when the temple is destroyed, it would usher in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, brought about by the Messiah. Now, this wasn't as much the expectation of Peter, James, and John, and Andrew as it was the expectation of the people reading Mark's gospel, people in Mark's community, the original hearers of this gospel. Because they were sitting there 10 years after the actual destruction of the temple when this book is written, 10 years after the destruction of the temple that Jesus predicted would happen, and they want to know when the kingdom of God is going to show up. They have this book. It says that when it's, this temple is destroyed, the kingdom of God will happen. And this is 10 years later, and it hasn't happened yet. God hasn't showed up to. Mark is not subtle in breaking out of his narrative of Jesus' life and talking directly to the reader here. 
Not at all. How unsubtle, he says in um, verse 14, let the reader understand. He gets out of this narrative here. It says, let the reader get uh, understand. When you see the desolating sacrilege set up there where it not ought to be, let the reader understand. And then the readers would understand because they saw the desolating sacrilege standing where it not ought to be. They saw Titus, the Roman general, standing atop the rubble of the temple that he destroyed along with the rest of Jerusalem. Mark's Jesus goes on to say that in this time of great suffering, when everyone is longing for the Messiah, that will, be put, that will put all to right, that will restore everything as it was, that there will be plenty of people who claim to be that Messiah and promise what they cannot deliver. Beware of false messiahs and false prophets. They will produce signs and omens to lead you away. Be alert. And then go on, and then he goes on to describe what it will look like when the true Messiah comes. And in doing so, he uses the same words he uses to describe what it was like when Jesus died on the cross. Crazy. All through Mark's gospel, Jesus' power and glory can only be understood as the power and the glory of the cross. So as we go towards Advent and towards that infant child in the manger, we always approach it from the cross. We cannot understand it outside of that. So as hard as it is to understand, as hard as it is to figure out what this means, as much as they and we want it to look different, the Messiah has already come, is already here. The revolution is in full swing now. It's just really, really hard to notice. Because we are looking in the wrong place, maybe. That's why we need to go through this Advent. That's why we need to look forward to these upcoming 28 days of recalling the revolution, the revelation. I started out trying to make this faltering call for revolution, but of course, that is the problem. That is about me misunderstanding what revolution revelation looks like. It's not my revolution to call for here. It's not about us getting together, a freedom-fighting band to overthrow them. This is a revolution without them. It's not about doing something to them at all. It's not even about us doing something. The revolution is being done to us has been done to us, is being done, is in full swing. We just don't know how to see it, and we don't know how to receive it. As we come towards Advent, let this be a time for recalling, for re-seeing. Let us pray that we may be given sight. First, that we may see the dead things that we worship and think of as power and revolution. Let's see those dead things we worship and then see beyond them and then feel deep inside of us the pangs of revolution. This is the Lord's table and everybody's welcome.
On the night before he suffered, our Lord took bread, gave thanks, broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me.